The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you're familiar with any psalm, it is surely this one, Psalm 23. It was the first psalm I memorized as a child. It's a psalm that makes for an easy pivot to Jesus, who indeed calls himself the Good Shepherd. And as we all know, it's common to read this psalm at funeral services to comfort those who grieve. In fact, I heard it read at a funeral just this past week. Psalm 23 is also a psalm that shows up every year on this day in our church calendar. The fourth Sunday of Easter, a day known as Good Shepherd Sunday. A day when we reflect upon the one who calls us each by name, just as he called Mary by name on that first Easter morning, and her eyes were opened to a new reality. There's something about envisioning Jesus as a loving and protective shepherd that naturally draws us in. Even a timid child can take comfort in the arms of a good shepherd, in the one who leads us beside the still waters, who restores your soul. It's an image of God that we would do well to meditate on regularly, to remind ourselves that we are God's beloved children. Which makes this psalm all the more appropriate for this day, because today we are also baptizing five children. Today, through the waters of baptism, God will receive these little ones into his family, making them his sons and daughters. They are becoming a part of his flock today, so that now, as Jesus the Good Shepherd says, they will hear my voice. And so there is a tenderness about this day, isn't there? Everything feels so personal and intimate. God's presence so close and calm. The Lord Jesus is our shepherd and the spirit is giving birth to new family members. I mean, yes, you can feel the warmth of the moment. But even so, even so, let us not allow the sentiment of this day to keep us from losing sight of its larger context, of its cosmic context. And neither let us allow the calmness of this day to keep us from feeling the shock waves that will radiate from this place, shaking the world inside out. Because this day is also a day of revolution. It's an apocalypse, if you will. Apocalypse, uh, not, not a word we typically associate with baptism, more like global disaster. But it's actually a word that simply means an unveiling, an uncovering. Uh, here, let me show you what's really going on behind the scenes. Let me pull back the curtains to reveal the cosmic realities that are clashing about here and there. And so it's an appropriate word for us today because we must not let this day go by without seeing what's under the surface of things, without experiencing a, a revelation of sorts. There's another word for the day, revelation. Uh, the last book of the Bible bears this title, doesn't it? It too is sometimes called the apocalypse, since that's the very first word in the Greek text, apocalypse, revelation. They both mean the same thing. The book of Revelation, then, is also about an unveiling, an uncovering. 
And I believe it will help us see what's really going on on this Good Shepherd Sunday on which we have a, a baptism service. So what is being unveiled in the book of Revelation? What is being uncovered? Well, contrary to popular thought, the book of Revelation is meant to unveil very little about the end of the world. In fact, even that phrase, the end of the world, is a bit misleading. It's more about the remaking of this world or the healing of this world. But still, that's something we only see in the last two chapters of Revelation. That's because the bulk of Revelation is about something else. It's about the unveiling of present realities. Allowing the early church to, to catch a glimpse of what was really going on behind the scenes of their present moment. As if John, the author of Revelation, was saying, Look, look, I know it doesn't feel like it right now, but the empire has no clothes. So pay attention and let me show you what's really going on. And then we are bombarded with vision after vision about the true nature of things. Who is really on the world's throne? What dark forces are really standing behind the governments of this world? What hope the faithful really has for resisting the claims of empire? You see, John is saying, things are not what they seem, which is why the early church needed a revelation, an apocalypse. Now, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, then you know that these unmaskings, these visions can be quite intense, especially the cycles of judgment that make up approximately half the book. I know, yes, the language is symbolical, the images are fantastical, but it's also very emotional. I mean, to read Revelation is to experience a good deal of shock and awe, exhausting at times, to say the least. Which is why John is so kind as to provide for us some breaks in the action. You know, various sections known as interludes scattered here and there throughout the book, places that allow you to breathe a little and get your bearings before moving on to the next cycle of judgment scenes. But these interludes do more than provide us with some R&R. They're also meant to teach us something profound about the nature and role of the church. And that's where things become relevant for us today. Because you may have noticed that our New Testament lesson this morning is taken from the book of Revelation. More specifically, it's taken from the very first interlude of Revelation, found in chapter 7. And it's a good thing, too, because chapter 6 is brutal. You know, that's when the seven seals on the scroll are broken one by one, and, and each unleashing a torrent of destruction upon the world. I mean, maybe you've read the chapter before, and so you'll remember what I'm talking about. You know how the first seal is broken, and then there's this white horse that rides into the world to conquer to conquer whatever lies in his path. And then the second seal then is a, a red horse signifying war. The third, a black horse of famine. The fourth, a pale horse, and its rider's name is death, and Hades follows close behind. These are all known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which just sounds downright frightening, doesn't it? Because you read the chapter, and it is. I mean, things are not going well. In fact, things are going so badly that chapter 6 ends with what feels like an obvious question. Who is able to stand 
in the midst of such devastation. Lord, have mercy. Who can stand? Well, that's when John presses the pause button on all the action so that he can answer this very question. Who is able to stand in the chaos of our world? His answer, the church. Those who have been baptized. Or as John puts it, those servants of God who are marked with a seal upon their foreheads, which, as you may know, is a reference to baptism. Even today, when a person is baptized, the priest anoints that person with oil and makes the sign of the cross upon his or her forehead and then says, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. And that's when we finally get to verse 9, the start of our passage for today, which says, this is John speaking, he says, After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And what are they doing? They are standing, right? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. This is the church triumphant. This is the church standing both in the midst of the chaos of this world and in the heavenly places before the throne of God. This is the church as a royal priesthood, a a holy nation, a, a, a new political entity, standing strong before the empires of this world, confident that those same empires will one day ultimately fall under the weight of their own arrogance and oppression. This is the church washed in the blood of the Lamb, enjoying even now the fruit of new creation. Listen to how John puts it in the last few verses of chapter 7. He says, And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them, pitch his tent over them. They will hunger no more. They will thirst no more. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be there. Did you catch it? Will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. My goodness, this is Psalm 23, isn't it? This is the promise of our baptism. This is our good shepherd sealing us as his family, caring for us, protecting us even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Can you see what's going on now? As we pull back the curtains on this day, do you see its cosmic ramifications? I mean, yes, it it is still Good Shepherd Sunday. Yes, there are children all dressed up for their baptisms. Yes, today may seem cute and cuddly, fit for a sentimental celebration, but there is something much deeper happening this day. Today, there is a shift in the fabric of the universe. The kingdoms of our world are becoming the kingdom of our Lord. Slowly but surely, like a mustard seed, like yeast at work within the dough, a political revolution is afoot each and every time a person is baptized into the flock of the Good Shepherd. And indeed, we can still say a lot more than this, can't we? For each and every time you and I remember our baptism, each and every time we renew our baptismal vows, 
Each and every time we gather around word and sacrament, every time we offer a cup of cold water to one who is thirsty, every time we turn the other cheek, the nature of reality is altered at its deepest level. The church standing to bear witness to a new creation that is both here and on its way. The kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdom of our Lord. (laughs) These are no small matters left for special occasions. No, this is the revolution of the good shepherd. And you and I are standing right in the middle of it. Along now with Eleanor Beasley and Abby Liam, Rowan, and Reed Wilson. Hallelujah. Let's stand together and witness their baptism.